Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Join us again today for our continuing series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. Today's message comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to chapter 12, verse 3, and it's entitled, Abandon Everything. Luke 14.33 records Jesus' teaching. It says, So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, when anyone comes to Christ, there are many things that we simply can't keep. Now, of course, those things vary. You know, for many, it may be their family. I've known a great many people whose family has disowned them upon conversion. And so for them to come to Christ, it means to abandon family. For others, it's their culture. And still others, it's their money or even their livelihood. All of us must abandon our sin. Christ demands all things that are not surrendered to him. Now, the conversion of Abraham, which we begin to discuss today, was just such a matter. He had, it would seem, no background in monotheism and his conversion to the one creator God, whose hand created all things, who alone is to be worshipped, must have clashed both with his culture and with his immediate family. Today, I want to trace the conversion of Abram, and from that, I want to make application to our lives. What is it that the one true God demands of everyone? So what do we actually know about the religion of Abram and his family? To answer that question, we notice that the Bible itself gives some clues, and other clues are given to us from archaeological digs of Ur of the Chaldeans. Let's start with what the Bible has to say. Joshua 24, verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now that statement makes it plain that not only did Terah serve other gods, but so did Abram. As a boy and then as a man, he would have committed himself to the gods of his culture and of his family. Now the next verse, Joshua 24, verse 3, indicates the ordering of things. It says, then I took your father Abraham. Now that verse would indicate that God himself had initiated Abraham's salvation. In other words, we're not to think that Abraham somehow found his way through from the worship of many gods, intellectually canceling them out and then coming to the one true God. No, no, it was rather that God found Abraham. Now, the only other passage that might slightly give us a clue about the conversion of Abraham comes from the New Testament. It's contained in Stephen's speech found in Acts 7, verses 2 to 4. There we read, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now, the ordering of events, and we're going to see, is very significant. God first encountered Abraham while he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. There must have been some kind of a conversion there in that city, and it must have been there that God told him that he had called him to leave his country. And interestingly enough, he did, but he did not immediately go to the land of Canaan, although he was on the way to there. 
It turns out that the decision to go to Canaan was not undertaken until after the death of his father. Indeed, it seems as if a pilgrimage was begun which included his entire extended family. Now, that fact may surprise some. You know, we have a mindset in which Abram goes by himself and that he goes directly. But, and this is never fully explained, it's not just Abram that leaves Ur, and that, initially, it must have been a very large group that included his father. Now, how did that come to be? Is Terah, Abram's father himself, on his own quest? Now, as we're going to see, the move from Ur follows a tragedy in the family, but even here, what this tragedy has to do with the pilgrimage is never fully explained. Nonetheless, It's not just Abram that leaves Ur, it includes the wider extended family. But before we get into that, let's consider the question of Abram's religion, that is, before he met the one true God. Let's review what we've already learned about Ur the Chaldeans. We know that the city used to be in what is now southern Iraq along the edge of the Euphrates River. We also know that the population of that city was about 250,000 people. Its economy depended upon worldwide imports, commerce, and manufacturing. It was a wealthy city. When Abraham lived there, it was a time of the greatest economic boom in its history. To put it in our terms, the economy, the arts, literature, the study of law— Poetry, music, and civilization as a whole was at its peak. It was probably a leading city in the world at that time. It was the place to be. We also know that the city was dominated by a huge temple tower called a ziggurat, which rose to about 80 feet in height and was dedicated to the god Nanar, or Sin, who was the god of the moon. The religion of that city is what we now call naturalistic polytheism. It means that it had many gods, and each one of them were connected to nature. So they were worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, the trees, the animals, and they assigned a god to everything in nature. This god Nanar, or Sin, the moon god, was the principal god of Ur, and the ziggurat built to his glory was served by many classes of priests. Now, the name Terah, that is the name of Abram's father, literally means one who worships the moon. In the ancient Jewish tradition, Terah's family business was idle distribution. So we can see how invested the family would have been in the religion of Ur. Their wealth was related to their religion. And one can only assume that Terah, because of his name, was personally devoted to his god Nanar. Now, the Bible tells us almost nothing of Abraham's original encounter with the one true creator, God. Did God reveal himself in a dream or in a vision or in some other supernatural way? See, it does no good to speculate. But what we do know is that at some time, Abram had a conversion to the one true living God and that this conversion was at the instigation of this one God. So how did the family react to this new religious belief? Were they concerned for the family business? Did they simply incorporate this into their already existing polytheism, believing that Abram had merely become a loyal member of another one of the gods? Again, we can only speculate, but whatever happened, we know that it didn't break the family apart. Indeed, the family came together at the instigation of Terah, and they decided to move and leave Ur behind. So let's read Genesis eleven twenty-seven to 29. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. So let's pay attention to the details. Of course, Terah himself came from somewhere. He doesn't just appear on the scene. So if we go back one chapter to chapter 10, verse 1, there we read, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We know that Terah comes from the generations of Shem. From the history in Genesis, we know that Noah specifically blessed Shem, and we also notice that Genesis 11 contains a list of Shem's descendants. So from that list, we know that Terah's father was named Nahor and that his grandfather was named Serug. We learn that Terah had three sons when he was living in Ur, Abram being his oldest, whom according to Genesis 11 verse 28, Terah would have fathered when he was 70 years of age. The next son is Nahor, who must have been named after his grandfather. Nahor will figure into the Genesis story, but only much later. The text also mentions a third son named Haran, but here the story is one of tragedy in that we find that Haran dies unexpectedly. We don't know the cause of his death, but the text says he died in the presence of his father. Now, that might mean that Terah actually witnessed the death of his son, but whatever it means, it does mean that Terah walked through the grief of outliving one of his own children. Now, before his death, Haran had fathered a child named Lot, Abram's nephew, whom Abram would care for in the story. Now, according to ancient practices, especially among the wealthy, marriage was within one's own close family. So Abram's wife was also no doubt the daughter of Terah, although by a different mother. And Nahor's wife was the daughter of his brother Haran. Now, getting beyond just how weird that sounds to us, please notice how dramatic the call would have been for Abram to leave his kindred in his father's house. The great creator was asking him to sever every family tie in a world where such a thing was considered impossible. You've heard the expression, you never know what someone is going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I'm amazed and moved at the number of incredible testimonies we receive from people confronting tragedy. Recently, a close friend lost his brother-in-law in a motorcycle accident and his sister was left critically injured. A neighbor shared the news of their daughter, married and mother of two, diagnosed with brain cancer. The tragedies of life arise without warning, often ending with profound loss and grief. What a blessing that so many would choose to share their stories with us. It really highlights the powerful, hope-renewing message found in the Bible. The daily teaching of the Bible is a privilege of this ministry. Please continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by sending that all-important gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online with your donation at backtothebible.ca. Genesis 11.30 says, Now Sarah was barren, she had no child. As we're told later in Genesis, Sarah may be barren, but Milcah, her sister-in-law, and her niece seems to have no difficulty in bearing children. And so it would seem that Terah and his family are beset by heartache. His one son dies, his one daughter is barren. 
Life is hardly what he would have dreamt of. Furthermore, it now must have become plain that his oldest son, because of his conversion, is no longer interested in his God nor in the family business. One wonders whether the city of Ur itself must have filled Terah with a, with a sense of bitterness. So let's continue to read. I'm, I'm reading verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Again, we do well to read slowly. At first glance, we might think that the family of Terah is breaking apart. After all, where is Nahor his second son? Has he remained in Ur? But as we continue to read Genesis, we come to chapter 28. There we find that Abram's grandson journeys to Haran, and they find the family of Nahor there. So Nahor did journey to Haran. So just notice that, and I'm going to come back to that important aspect of this story later. But for now, please notice that Nahor and his family are not mentioned in the initial journey to Haran. But let's stop for a moment. Where is Haran in relation to Ur? Remember, the Bible has said Terah, Abram, Sarah, and Lot were not on the way to Haran, but they're actually on the way to Canaan, the land where Abram will end up and the land where his descendants will one day possess. How did they end up in Haran rather than Canaan? And where is Haran? So in the ancient world, no one would ever go from southern Iraq straight west to Canaan. And the reason for that is that west of Ur would have been the inhospitable Arabian desert. They would not have survived if they had tried to cross that. Instead, travelers would have followed what we now call the Fertile Crescent. They would have gone in the shape of a massive crescent going north from southern Iraq until they came to what would now be the Syrian-Turkish border. This would mean that the family would have traveled some 885 kilometers from Ur going north until they arrived in the city of Haran. From there, they would have been required to go southwest into Canaan. At Haran, they would have come to approximately the halfway point in the journey. So when Terah's family arrived in Haran, they would have found a city very much like what they would have left in Ur. The same god Nanu, or Sin, the moon god, was the god over that city just like it was in Ur. There's a large temple in the center of that city just like Ur, dedicated to the moon god. Furthermore, like Ur, the city was financially prosperous. Ezekiel 27 verse 23 says that the city traded in blue cloth. That would have been considered very expensive material fit for the elite of any society. So clearly there was money there. And if one knew how, you could make money there. And it's right here on the way to Canaan that Terah stopped and refused to go on. And it is right here that the pilgrimage stopped, and this now becomes their new home. Perhaps Terah could see that he could resume his idol-making business here. Perhaps the farmland that surrounded the city attracted them. After all, years later, we find Nahor's family with considerable land and sheep and wealth in Haran. It must have been that Terah sent word to Nahor saying, Bring your family here. There's all sorts of open land. We can make a great living in this place. And it's right here that we can imagine a family discussion. Again, we're left to speculate. I mean, did this journey, this pilgrimage begin because Abram had insisted that he had encountered God in Ur and had demanded that they as a family leave that city? Now, that does seem likely. 
perhaps only Abram had come to believe, but because he was the oldest, because he would have been in the position of prominence, they all did it together. But after almost 1,000 kilometers of a difficult travel on foot, this pilgrimage had come to an abrupt end, and the family arrived in Haran and saw one last possibility of ending this wild-eyed pilgrimage into an unknown place. And with that, we come to the last verse in chapter 11. Verse 32 says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, we simply don't know how long the family lived in Haran. But the text seems to indicate that Abram remained in Haran until the death of his father, and only after that did he complete his journey that God had called him to take. Now, we might read this and be somewhat disappointed in Abram. You might remember the account of Ruth. She leaves Moab, follows her mother-in-law all the way to Bethlehem. When Naomi insists that Ruth return to her native land, to her household gods, Ruth says those famous words, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. See, Ruth represents a woman that's quite willing to abandon every last member of her family and journey to find the one true God of Israel in a land of his choosing. Indeed, if we go forward to the New Testament, Jesus spoke very clearly about this. I'm reading Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, it is so very important that we understand Jesus on his terms and not our own. You know, Jesus never taught us to despise our family. He taught us to love our family. But the hate he speaks of is that we would place the demands of our family as secondary to his demands. But Abram doesn't seem to have any of that. You know, some time ago, I was speaking with a man who told me his testimony. He had gone to an evangelistic service in a church, and he'd given his life to Christ. And even as he did that, he knew there'd be trouble when he got home. His wife, when she heard of his commitment to Christ, told him that he'd have to decide. It was going to be her or Jesus, and it wasn't going to be both. And he chose Jesus, and she divorced him. Indeed, in just such a case, that's exactly what Jesus demands of us. If you would love anyone or anything above me, you're not worthy of me. Listen to Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, when you and I read this, it's, it's hard to miss how Jesus speaks in categorical terms. And since Abraham is the father of our faith, we might wonder about this decision of his to remain in Haran to first bury his own father before he would follow the command of God. You know, to that I would respond in several ways. First, we must remember that, that Abraham did not have access to the teaching of Jesus. There were no prophets of God that had gone before him that he could read on this matter. There was no Bible. There was just this one call of God. 
And secondly, no one who reads Abraham's story needs to think that we encounter a perfect Abraham in our Bible. We encounter a man who is anything but perfect. So in chapter 13, we see him fleeing to Egypt and then lying about his wife and then selling her into a harem. No, Abraham is presented as he truly is. He's a man who's growing in his ability to trust in the God who called him. Thirdly, unlike Ruth, who had traveled to Israel and to the people of God, Abraham is not traveling to any people. He's traveling away from the only people that he knew. There was not yet the law of God and the worship that was presented in the temple. He was going to nothing but to the God who called him and to the God in whom he trusted. Now, Abraham didn't know about leaving his family. All he knew was that God had called him. And even though he waited until after the death of his father, he never forgot that God had called him. Eventually, he would take his wife and his nephew and his servants and his cattle, and he journeyed south until he reached Canaan, only in time for there to be a famine and there to be an immediate crisis. What we encounter in Abraham is an imperfect man filled with many of the fears that we all wrestle with, coming to a conclusion that he would leave everything he had and stake his future on the one true God. And in that, his example is a perfect example for us. For anything that we love more than the God who has called us is to be renounced. Like Abraham, our father, let us then count our God and his promises in the gospel as more precious than any other thing that we have. John, this is an important message today, and uh, one I think that perhaps many people think of when they're first considering coming to the Lord. And there's this sense that should we have an expectation that we need to give something up, that we need to be able to sacrifice something when we come to Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that every single one of us has to sacrifice something. I mean, for one, we need to let go of our own sin. And that sin may uh, be a part of our lives in a number of different areas. And uh, but I think there's something else as well. There might be some goals in our lives that we need to give up. I know for myself, I mean, one of the goals in my life was either to inherit the family farm or to have my own business. And God had called me in a different pathway. And, and the calling of God in my life means that I had to say yes to that and no to those other things that I planned for myself. But I think the whole basis of this message, Ben, is that no matter what it is that we're called to give up, what we receive from the Lord is so much greater than anything that we've ever sacrificed. It really makes our sacrifices, well, it makes it look like nothing at all because, in fact, we have been so enriched and not impoverished by coming to Christ that all we can really talk about is all the gain that we have and not the loss. That's a great message of encouragement, John. Thanks so much today. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Time for making a decision about attending the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise is drawing near. This February 3rd to the 10th, join Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, guest worship and performing artist Rika, and the Laugh Again team for a week of sun, fellowship, laughter, and spiritual refreshment, all while sailing the blue seas of the Caribbean. Enjoy one of the newest and largest ships in the Caribbean, the Oasis of the Seas, 
And because you're a part of the Laugh Again Cruise, you'll enjoy exclusive events with Phil and many more special ministry activities designed just for you. So call and register soon to avoid disappointment. For all the info you'll need, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Plan on making the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise a lifetime memory with family and friends. See you there.